we're going to begin to look at what I call the greatest sermon ever told. It's the whole story of God, of God's love, sending his son into the world. And with the son comes the kingdom. When the king comes, the kingdom arrives. And then his remarkable ministry of preaching the gospel, teaching, healing, delivering. And we will come to the sermon, which is from Matthew chapter 5 through to Matthew chapter 7. And in the sermon, Jesus teaches us about the kingdom. He talks about so many things which are so, so practical. He talks about how to enjoy the blessings of the kingdom. He talks about how to allow the character of the kingdom to grow and develop and bear fruit in our lives. He talks about our relationship with the law of Moses. A lot of people have confusion about that and they have a legalistic approach to their relationship with God. And Jesus shows us how we've been set free from the law. But then he also shows how that the righteous standard that God calls us to live by in the kingdom is a, a, a really beautiful righteousness, a way of life which surpasses anything that religion could ever offer. And in doing this, it talks about a lot of practical things. It talks about how to deal with anger in your heart, how to deal with lust and sinful desire in your heart. It talks about how to handle yourself and have a marriage that honors the covenant of marriage. It talks about spiritual practices such as giving, praying, and fasting. It instructs us about these things, to do these things in a way that links with God's blessing and God's glory. And overall, he shows us how we can build a Christian life, a strong, stable, fruitful Christian life that will be richly rewarded when we go to heaven. But today I want to go back into chapter 4 before we actually get to the sermon so you get a bit of background and you can just get a flow of this. And uh, the verse I want to focus on is Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then verse 18 and onwards goes on to say, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father 
and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains and oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Reading part of that, I turn to my friend here who is a great evangelist and he delights in that passage as I do indeed as well. Now, tomorrow we're able to go shopping. Brothers, keep your credit card safe. (laughs) We're also able to eat a hamburger out of doors somewhere. But we're all anticipating. They say, watch out for the 21st of June, when the lockdown will be over, apparently. But we're all anticipating that moment, whenever it comes, when we hear the good news, lockdown is over, coronavirus is defeated. Now we can begin to live again, or at least enjoy life again, post-COVID-19. Well, that excitement is nothing by comparison to the impact that the people felt when Jesus made that world-changing announcement. The time has come. The kingdom of heaven has finally arrived. And we don't feel the impact quite in the same way as they might have felt it back in that day, but let me help you with it. Imagine with me, Come with me in your imagination. Imagine how you would react when that next big event takes place, when Jesus comes again. Imagine if right now, at this very moment, the news comes that Jesus has come back, he's returned. You you know that from that moment, everything as we know it now will have been totally transformed. A new age dawned in all its glorious splendor and fullness. All the previous paradigms, programs are redundant. Jesus has come back. Everything has been made new. The creation, the new creation has come. Well, that is something like the impact those early disciples of Jesus and those who heard him preach felt 2,000 years ago when he made that earth-shattering announcement, God's kingdom has come. What he meant by that was God's kingdom had been inaugurated, truly come, but a whole chain of events was now set in motion that will continue and grow and increase until finally, The kingdom will not just be inaugurated, but the kingdom will be consummated, coming in all its fullness. But nevertheless, for them, it was a life-changing announcement. 
And for you and I, it is also a life-changing announcement. Nothing can ever be the same again when God's kingdom comes. That's why the call of the kingdom is, is a call for a great change in us. Radical repentance. Radical faith. Radical discipleship. Now, when we look into chapter 4, we appreciate that Jesus had recently relocated. He had spent some time in Judea, but he heard the news that John the Baptist had been arrested, and that signaled for Jesus a moment when he needed to withdraw and go to Galilee. Why? Probably because he did not want to accelerate the events in Jerusalem and Judea that would ultimately lead to his rejection and crucifixion on the cross. He didn't shun that, but he was following God's program. And when he withdraws from Judea and goes to Galilee in the north, first of all, he goes to his hometown and preaches to his own people. Then he moves a little south to a place called Capernaum, which is on the northwestern shore of the uh, Sea of Galilee, and he sets up in Capernaum his ministry headquarters for Galilee. And from that place, Jesus goes on a glorious preaching tour of the towns and villages of Galilee. We're told that 300,000 people, more or less, lived in Galilee at that time. There were about 20 different uh, towns and villages, no major city. But as he went around that mountainous region preaching the gospel, it says many crowds followed him from the whole of the region and beyond. From Jerusalem they came, from Judea, even from beyond the Jordan River. It was an evangelist's dream, but also a Bible teacher's golden opportunity. Now, just over 20 years ago, I completed my Sword of the Spirit series. And uh, partly one of the things that I did in Mauritius and uh, Pastor Vishnu was just in our welcome room, we were talking about this, uh, teaching um, on the Sword of the Spirit series. And yesterday, I finished teaching The Rule of God, which is one of the books in that series, teaching it by live stream right across Central Asia and the Caucasus in the Russian language. Yesterday, I was reflecting on what motivated me to put that kind of teaching, 12 topics, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of hours of research. And when we were also drawing on others who were helping me with it and revising it, why? At that time, my mind was very much on what was happening in Africa, sub-Saharan Africa. Rana Bonke was getting great crowds. People were coming to Christ again and again, if you know what I mean. Huge crowds. Uh, and yet, it's not enough just to preach the gospel to crowds. We need to disciple people, teach them and disciple them. That's what the Great Commission is all about. So I prepared a, seri a teaching series with no frills, no footnotes, no examples, no applications, just the teaching of the Word of God. 
And that has been blessed over the years in lots of different languages. And all over the world where there's a strong evangelistic thrust with great crowds coming to Christ, the greatest need is for teaching and discipling people. And this is exactly what the Sermon on the Mount becomes. Jesus sits down and teaches his disciples. But let's get back to the announcement. The announcement, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. That's how it's recorded in Mark's gospel. In Matthew's gospel, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, it's drawn near. It's so close that you can just reach out and grab it. Now, we need to understand what this word kingdom really means because we've got our own ideas and uh, probably we would think of the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, it is a, 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 a united kingdom of different nations uh, with borders between the nations and certainly borders around the nation. And so we think of a kingdom as a territorial pl- place on this earth with frontiers, with boundaries, with somebody reigning. And of course, in our experience, in our example, in here in Great Britain, it's the queen who, who rules. So we are head of state is also a queen. Now, that's helpful to a point, but you need to understand that when the word kingdom is used in the Bible, it's not talking about a geographical realm or a particular country with borders. It's it's not talking about even any kind of political kingdom. It's talking about the ruling authority of God breaking into this earth realm. Jesus was probably teaching around AD 33, something like AD 30, 33, something like that. And uh, 70 years before that, there was an example from history that helps us understand the meaning of the word kingdom. Herod, who later became Herod the Great, no doubt that's what he called himself, he was there in Judea. He had a kind of authority, but he was vying with different political leaders. He was, he was schmoozing various emperors and generals and he decided he didn't have enough authority, enough power. So he said, I'm going to go to Rome. I'm going to talk to the Roman Senate, did this AD 39, sorry, BC 39, 40. And he received from the Roman Senate a kingdom, meaning the right to rule, the authority to rule. And he came from Rome into Judea and established himself as King Herod, the king of the Jews. Now, possibly this is the historical background to what Jesus taught in the parable of the nobleman. Luke chapter 19 and verse 12, Jesus says, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. So that's very important for you to know that this is not an earthly geographical political kingdom. It is God's ruling authority breaking into your life, his personal rule, his spiritual rule over your life as you repent and believe and surrender to his kingship. And so the second thing is that this personal rule, and we need to to grasp this, it's a very significant point. It begins small, or as they might say in Mauritius, small, small. (laughs) It begins small. Now, great crowds followed him, but actually, 
the, the followers of Jesus were few to begin with. And this kingdom grows. It begins small, but it is going to grow and grow and grow. And one day, this kingdom is going to cover the earth. Uh, another evangelist friend of mine was, uh, well, still is, outrageous, absolutely outrageous and courageous. And so there he is in the Middle East. And he gate crashes an ambassador's party of representatives of ambassadors and national leaders from all over the region. And he goes in, he bluffs his way in, I think at, at the security gate, they said, your passport, please. He lifts out his Bible and says, this is my passport. And they let him in. Crazy people. Anyway, so they were bumping into him and introducing themselves. Where are you? Where, where are you? Uh, which is your country? Which is your country? Which country do you represent? He said, not country, kingdom. Not country, kingdom. Kingdom? Yes. And one day, my kingdom, this kingdom, is going to swallow up all your kingdoms. And they said, oh, you're funny, you're funny. But how true it is. Now, I want to just take you into one scripture in the Old Testament that teaches this. There's so many, and I encourage you, when you're reading particularly the Old Testament, find out other scriptures which show that the kingdom of God is going to be big. It's going to be victorious. It's going to be successful. And, and the glory of the Lord is going to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. God's knowledge is going to be everywhere. God's kingdom wins, and we're in the kingdom, so therefore we are winners, winners. There's a song that says, oh, cinnamon, where are you going to run to? Oh, cinnamon, no, no, no. Where, I would say like this, oh, winner man, oh, winner man, we're never going to run away. Anyway, don't worry about that. Cut that out, cut that out. Don't let that go out live. Oh, too late. We are winners, yep. Sinners repentant become winners because the kingdom of God has already won. Satan is defeated, destroyed, driven out, and God's power has already begun to work in our lives. Okay, okay. Now then, Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, verse 35 is the verse. Going to come up on your screen. But if you want to open to it, have a look from verse 31 and onwards. There it is. Now, what we have here is the story of Daniel interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Who was Nebuchadnezzar? He was the most powerful man on the planet. I mean, you talk about the President of the United States of America. He is puny by comparison to Nebuchadnezzar's power. Nebuchadnezzar's empire was huge, probably the biggest, the strongest, the most influential empire in history. An amazing empire. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army had overthrown Jerusalem and taken captives. And that must have caused a great crisis of faith of the people living in Jerusalem. Hey, we, we belong to the kingdom of God. And in those days, the kingdom was expressed through an earthly king who ruled over an earthly people with geographical boundaries, the land of Canaan, Israel of old. But now, all that's demolished and destroyed and they're wondering who's in charge now. What's gone on? It was a crisis of their faith, a crisis of their identity. But remarkably, God visits the empire, the emperor of the 
biggest empire in, in history, one of the most forceful and strong, with a dream and a vision, all about the kingdoms of this world. Amazing. Wouldn't it be amazing if today God would invade the nighttime of our rulers with dreams and visions like this? God has his testimony everywhere. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And he wakes up, he's troubled from this dream. And he says, I want you to interpret the dream. So he brought all the high officials, you know, the enchanters, the musicians, the, the, um, the, the uh, mystical people around him, interpret this and according to all their religion. But, they said, but he said, now this is what you've got to do. First, you've got to tell me what that dream is. Oh, no, we, we, we tell us and we'll interpret it. No, no, I don't want you. I know what you're playing. I know the game you're playing. I need to know that you're speaking accurately. So you tell me what my dream is, and then you tell me what it means. And if you don't, by the way, you're going to be destroyed, you and your families, and so there it is. Now, news came to Daniel. Daniel had the gift of interpreting dreams. He didn't do it by divination. He didn't do it by any of the magical arts that were being taught there in Babylon. He was a man in touch with God. Let me tell you, we are going to need to know in these days that we are really in touch with God. For the days we're passing through, no human wisdom can guide us. We need to be close to God and we need to be so close to God that we could be positioned in key places. Who knows? Well, there are people who are believers in the royal palace, apart from Her Majesty the Queen, who is a believer, as we know. How about in, the, in number 10? How about in number 11? I don't know which you need to pray for more, number 10 or number 11 these days. But wherever we go, we need people who will know God who will know how to speak the language of the Babylonians, but who will remain faithful and loyal to the living God so when the time comes, they can step up and say, I know what God is saying here. And that's what happened. And so Daniel, in a miraculous way, said, Oh, king, this is what your dream was. In the night, you saw a vision, and the vision was of an image, like a statue, okay, an image. And you saw the head of this image was made of gold. And you saw that the chest and arms of this image were made of silver, the thighs of bronze, the legs of iron, and the feet part iron, part clay. This is what you saw. And also in your dream, in your vision, you saw a stone, a rock coming, a rock that had not been cut or carved by human hands. And you saw this rock strike the feet of this statue where it was brittle and weak, the clay and the iron poorly mixed together. And you saw the whole of that statue crumble, disintegrate and blown away by the wind. And that stone that was not made with human hands that caused all the statue, and by the way, these were representing kingdoms of the earth, the Babylonian kingdom right the way down through the Roman Empire, which is represented by the feet. And during the time of the Roman Empire, God sent forth his son 
And when he sent forth his son, he was not created. He was not formed or made by the will of man. He was the eternal son of the eternal God, not shaped by human hands, no origin in humanity, divine origin. The son of God was, as it were, launched into this earth. And when he came, he broke the kingdoms of this world to establish God's kingdom. Now, then Daniel says, look, and do you remember in your dream what you saw was that stone not only destroyed all the earthly kingdoms, but that stone grew and grew and grew and became a great mountain that filled the earth. That is the kingdom of God. Amen and amen. Now, one word of Russian is, you know, I always pick up languages. Harasho, that means very good. Okay, let's go. Daniel 2, verse 35. I was preaching in Russian. I had an interpreter yesterday. Daniel 2, verse 35. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. All the kingdoms of the earth are going to fall and all the kingdoms of the earth are going to become the kingdom of God Almighty and his royal son, Jesus Christ, the Lord, the King. Final sentence. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Why am I telling you this today? To encourage you. You might feel that you're in a minority. Well, we are. You might not feel that we hold political power and can command earthly armies to establish God's rule on the earth. We can't. But the good news is it doesn't come that way. It comes from heaven. And no matter how small we are or apparently powerless we are in terms of the worldly power as people judge worldly power, but we have been anointed by the most high God and we are in his kingdom and that kingdom shall prevail. So you're in the right kingdom. And if you're not, if you're not in God's kingdom, you're in another kingdom, the kingdom of darkness. Get out of that now and embrace Jesus Christ as the Lord and King of your life. So, now, just one more thing before we close today. This kingdom, the kingdom of God that Jesus announced and said the kingdom is here, is a spiritual rule, spiritual kingdom. And it, isn't, it doesn't stop at the borders. God's spirit doesn't need a passport or a visa. God's spirit and the spirit of the kingdom is everywhere. And as the kingdom is expanding and its influence is growing, something else is happening. When God's kingdom comes, the rebellious kingdom of Satan is pushed back and destroyed. Already, Satan himself is destroyed. Jesus has defeated the enemy, triumphed over the forces of the enemy in the spiritual realm. And as we announce the victory of the kingdom, 
and live according to the kingdom, we are administering on earth the triumphant victory of Christ in heaven, pushing back the powers of darkness, breaking Satan's hold over people's lives. Just as it's said of Jesus, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the evil one. Now, to that sentence I quoted, and I will show you a difference from the way I quoted it and the way it is in Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11, 15 to 16. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven. In case you don't know the book of Revelation, it is full of imagery and John sees into heaven and and there are loads of things happening, angels and trumpets and seals and all that kind of stuff. But it's enough to know just for today that this trumpet, which precedes a glorious heavenly announcement, sounded, and this is the announcement. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. He shall reign. I'm hearing Handel's Messiah now as I say it, but I won't try to sing it because I don't think you could take any more of that today. Now, did you notice the difference from the way I said it before? I said the kingdoms, plural, of this world shall become the kingdom of God. Now, Here, it doesn't say kingdoms, plural. It says kingdom. What's that about? You see, Satan has two titles. He is the God of this age, the God of this world, and he is the ruler. The God of this age and the ruler of this world. Now, it's an illegitimate rule, a rebellious rule, but he still controls. God rules. Religion, politics. In other words, he's the God of this age and the one who is behind all religion and religions. Now, of course, we belong to the Christian religion, but really, it's, it's not a religion as such. I know technically it's got to be described as that, but it's not about religion. It's about a relationship with Jesus. And it's not about being religious, it's about living in the kingdom of God. And I think that Jesus shows you, as we shall see, shows you how to live in the kingdom of God without being religious. Amen and amen to that. So when Jesus died, was raised again from the dead, he set in motion something that will happen when Satan's hold over the minds and hearts of men, either through religion or control through politics, All of that will be torn down, showing us that there really is only one kingdom that God's kingdom opposes. It is the rebellious, illegitimate, defeated kingdom of Satan. And the kingdom of this world, which is everything that Satan does to manipulate. Don't don't think I'm getting too crazy, crazy here. You'd have to be really, really dumb not to see behind all that is happening in the world, not to see some spiritual orchestration going on from some malevolent force that is seeking to destroy humanity. Now, 
Don't blame it all on the devil because we have to repent, seek God and become part of the solution and not part of the problem. But here's the point. When the kingdom comes, Satan's kingdom is destroyed. One more verse. Matthew 11, 20, uh, verse 12. Let me read it. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence or forcefully advancing and the violent take it by force. Now, without going into too much detail here, this is, whatever else it is, is a picture. As God's kingdom comes, pushes back Satan's kingdom. And the manifestation of God's kingdom means defeat to every one of the spiritual powers of darkness. And that's why we are still here, to shine as lights, to push back the darkness, to do good works, to push back works of evil, to stand for righteousness so that unrighteousness is being pushed back, to stand for the good of people and for the life that God wants people to live, to release them from the power of Satan in the name of Jesus, by the gospel, so that they can be transferred from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son whom God loves. And we shall see every time we surrender to God and just yield that bit more to him, God's kingdom comes. And the enemy's kingdom is pushed back. Every time we lead a soul to Christ, we are plundering hell and populating heaven, as Reinhard Bonke used to say. Every time we see an answer to prayer, the kingdom is coming and Satan's power is pushed back. Every time we see a healing from the Father, it is pushing back the powers of darkness. Every time there is a deliverance and people are set free from evil powers, God's kingdom is coming. That's our mandate. That's our call. That's the work of the kingdom. Jesus began it and then he handed it over to us from a point of victory and accomplishment. But in the meantime, the good news is God's government has come. The only government does not need to be elected. God elects us. We don't elect him. He did not come to take sides. Well, yeah, you know, I, I really rather like the Republicans. Let me get behind them. Sorry, Donald Trump. No way. He's not on the side of the Republicans, nor on the side of the Democrats, nor on Labour, Conservative, and Liberal. I know we're in the middle of a, of a campaign here. But, but actually, the point is, it's God's government that is important. And all we do is a witness to that government. And everything we do in our personal lives and professional lives, or even political lives, is to announce that government of God and somehow seek that God's will will be that better done in me and through me than previously. It's his spiritual rule, his reign over the hearts of his people. Those who repent and believe, who receive the kingdom, surrender to his personal rule, developing a personal relationship and knowledge of God. The kingdom has come in the person of Jesus Christ. Everything that he did or said, he preached and taught. All of this was about the kingdom of God. And so now, simplest terms of all, you want to be in the kingdom of God? Get to know Jesus. For where the king is, there is the kingdom.